we got back on uh, Monday night, uh, late Monday night, and got right back to work on Tuesday. Uh, I caught up with, uh, we, had he- we had Hebrews on Monday and Tuesday here, and by Wednesday we were in James, and Roy just read part of James. And uh, the way this is set up, you read James all in one day, which is a great way uh, to read James. And so I did that on Wednesday, and then on Thursday, uh, Megan and I were privileged to be able to go to the Global Leadership Summit, which is the Willow Creek Leadership Conference. And uh, right over here at the Yellow Box is uh, by Simulcast, we were able to go there. And um, I, I, I discovered as we were getting into the morning and some of the speakers that there were some wonderful overlapping themes, some of these practical issues that James deals with and what some of these leaders are talking about, uh, both in the world of the church as well as in the business and corporate world, of some of these common themes about the importance of people and the importance of humility and, and, and other areas like that. So as I was looking at what I would preach about today, would I, would I take some themes from Hebrews, would I wait to see what we pick up in Mark on Thursday and Friday, I realized sitting at the summit on Wednesday, uh, really, that James was where... Uh, I wanted to go. If you're familiar with the Global Leadership Summit, Bill Hybels has been doing it for over 20 years now and um, brings in all kinds of business leaders and church leaders from uh, around the country, around the world actually, uh, preaching and speaking on different leadership themes. Uh, they're not all necessarily Christian people, although they're sympathetic and supportive to what, what Bill is doing. And, um, but it's about being, being good leaders and it's ultimately to serve uh, the church. And uh, the summit always starts with Bill Hybels, which is almost always my highlight. Um, if I can't get to any other part of it, it's, uh, he always has such practical and inspirational things. I've appreciated him for, for, for 40 years. He's, I think I found out he's about four weeks older than I am and was starting a ministry about the same time as our churches are about the same size. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't matter. Uh, but I, 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 I have a lot of admiration for him. He has stayed humble throughout. He has stayed willing to admit his mistakes, and he is always retooling himself uh, to serve the church. He is scandal-free uh, because of his commitment to Christ, his commitment to the Word. But he began, and one of the things he said is the highest value at the Global Leadership Summit is humility. The highest value at the Global Leadership Summit is humility. And then he said this. He said a lot, but this is what I wrote down. Armed with enough humility, we can learn from anyone. Isn't that great? And that's why some of these business leaders who may not have a crisis central in their life and yet are devoted to their work in ways that it serves people and serves the cause, we, we can learn if we're humble enough to realize that we don't have all the answers in life. We can learn from anyone. And that's the kind of genesis of what happens in the summit. And then he himself gives an example of that. He says, for years I've been teaching uh, that there are eight critical functions of leadership. And he, he didn't go into each of these, but he listed these eight. Casting vision, building teams, motivating, inspiring, solving problems, change management, establishing core values, allocating resources, developing emerging leaders. And then in typical Hybels fashion, he says, but I've realized over the years that this stuff doesn't always happen. There's some, there's some leaders who do all these things and, 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 and fail, and it doesn't work. And he said, but more important, he says, I've noticed there's some, that there are some leaders who, who don't do all these things and yet find great success and uh, encouragement in their leadership. And so he talked about not only these, not just these eight functions, but about five intangibles, intangibles of leadership. And that was the, the core of his message. And I'm not going to repeat his message. It's, this is going somewhere. We're going to get back to James real soon. Stick with me, okay? The first one he shared was grit. Isn't that great? Grit. Of just kind of sticking to it and doing what you can. And those of you who are uh, old enough, like my generation and older, uh, can identify with the story that he used to back up grit. It's the little engine that could. I think I can, I think I think I think I think I can get the train over the mountains, 
to get the toys to the kids on their side. And he talked about that determination and grit. Secondly, he talked about self-awareness and the effect of past things in our life and how it, how it affects how we behave now. And he also talked about blind spots we need to become aware of in our leadership and service positions. So behaviors we have that might not be working well that we can't see and we need to be humble enough and vulnerable enough to say, help me understand my blind spots so I can be more effective. Resourcefulness, he talked about. Constant learning and curiosity is one of the intangibles. And then another intangible is a sense of meaning. He says uh, in, in anybody's work, church or any kind of corporate setting or whatever, uh, there, is the, there is the what, there's the how, and the why. And we're pretty good about what to do, and we're pretty good about how to do it. But we don't always know the why we are doing it. And so he took off on that, and he talked about having uh, a white-hot why. (laughs) And this was his time that he shared the gospel. That's his white-hot why. A passion to see people come to know Christ and know forgiveness and grace and empowerment in Christ. So Heibel is not confused uh, that leadership is the highest goal, but knowing Christ is the highest goal. The fifth intangible of leadership, and this is the one that really got me in the sense of encouragement, but also in terms of conviction. The intangible of leadership is that of self-sacrificing love. And he's not just talking about church structure and pastors here. He's talking about all kinds of people in all kinds of different public and private and corporate sectors of self-sacrificing love, a commitment to people, a commitment to giving of self, a commitment of even bending the rules when it's needed in order to serve an employee or a fellow worker. And this was the one that really kind of gripped me was the centrality of people, no matter what the workplace or what the leadership context happens to be. The next speaker after Bill Hybels was Jim Collins. And some of you may know Jim Collins' name. His best-known book was, was Good to Great. And is that right? Good, great, yeah. Um, and uh, other other leadership books that he's written. And he has studied leadership for years. And he just came off a couple years of of teaching and doing research at West Point of all places. And Collins' theme kept coming back to a focus on people, a focus on people. He kept coming back to the idea of having a cause in your work, no matter what your industry or business is. That what the main business we're in is the business of changing the lives of people for the good. The core to 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 leadership is, is caring for people and keeping humility. And he sounded the theme of humility as well. Honestly kept coming, and, and humility and honesty kept coming up in what he said and succeeding speakers. Over and over again, the themes of the importance of people, of a cause, of caring for people uh, came up over and over again. And so we're getting to James now. And so as I reflected on James, at the same time as I reflected on this one day at the Global Leadership Summit, some things began to come together for me. The practical, godly wisdom that James speaks of, at least in his book, is more important, or at least uh, more more upfront than the theological truths behind them. It's so so core to James. And that's what I was hearing here in the conference. Yes, the theological truths and what Heibel shared about knowing Christ being the most important was there, and yet these were these practical skills that were all rooted in how we care for ourselves, how we approach one another, how we get along, and how we care for one another, and how we live in a self-sacrificing love. And so I did not go to the second day of the Global Leadership Summit because I needed to write this sermon on connecting James and that. But uh, anyway, so what I really love about James and the intro material in the book speaks of it. It's not a straight line with one or two purposes, this letter that James wrote. It's kind of a smattering of different things, and the introduction tells us that. But it's more of a collection of sayings, a collection of teachings and reminders. There's an emphasis here all the way through on, on daily living. It's mostly focused on how we view ourselves and how we treat each other. 
But it's more, he states it right at the beginning, that he's not just writing to one church, he's writing, he says, to scattered Christians everywhere, Jewish Christians. And it appears from the context that they're experiencing persecution and trials and temptations. Because after just a, a brief, uh, brief introduction, uh, he jumps right in, and some of you know these words, where he says, Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials. Some of you have lived with those words. Some of you have struggled with those words, and some of you have been empowered by them. So he is writing to a church that, and to believers that are experiencing persecution and trials. And so he is offering some care, but he's also offering some challenges because he realizes that for these churches to endure persecution, they need to be strengthened as a community, and their strength needs to be in how they care for one another, how they relate to one another how they view themselves, how they live in an atmosphere of humility, of trust, and of love, and caring for one another. The churches then were struggling under persecution by the Roman authorities. The church today is facing challenges also. Other countries are experiencing that kind of persecution, but even in our own country, we we face the challenges of pluralism that grows around us. We face the challenge of a growing irrelevance of the church. The church is losing impact and and is seen more and more for its irrelevance, its lack of ability to make any kind of difference. The church is struggling with overcoming some of the mistakes that we've made in our history and trying to correct those by by living into a more relevant gospel that makes a difference. The church is being called to live out a, a relevant and authentic faith that shows in how we live. And the challenge for us is to live as a united or unified, strong community. We face similar kinds of challenges. And these simple words, the simple wisdom that that James shares can be an encouragement for us as well. So this is James who writes it. James, who we believe uh, is the brother of Jesus or the half-brother of Jesus, who was the pastor and the leader of this young church in Jerusalem. As James, this pastor leader of the young church in Jerusalem, as he writes and works to strengthen and build up his community of faith, there are words of wisdom and challenge that ring clear for our church today as well. Now, there's so much that I could cover in James. And there's several different themes, uh, but there's three that I kind of grouped around. The first one is getting over ourselves, this theme of humility. The second one is watching our words. This is where the words taming the tongue come from. That was James. There is James. And then thirdly, this area of living out our faith and living into our good deeds. Faith without works is dead is a phrase that comes from James as well. So we're going to look at these and sort of scratch the surface a little bit and see where we are as individuals and then where we are as a church. Bill Heibel said that this is the highest value, this humility is the highest value at the global summit. And it's a high value for James as well. And it's a high value really as you read through the New Testament, the words of Jesus himself who said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give a, his life as a ransom for many. It's a theme of the Apostle Paul as we see in Philippians where it talks about uh, considering one another as Christ did. For him it comes also in this area where he addresses the rich, the poor, and the issue of playing favorites. Now, I realize as soon as we talk about the rich and the struggles with humility there, um, there, we instantly think of one of the richest people we know and one of the, I know I'm not supposed to share political opinions in church, but I think most of you agree with me, what is with Donald Trump? (laughs) Can I say that? There might be supporters in the room, and I'll pray for you. (laughs) I know we're frustrated, and he taps into that. But, you know, we we see the arrogance of wealth. We see what's happened in terms of uh, a sense that it gives him license to say whatever he wants to do. And so it's easy to peg issues of humility or a lack of humility. It's easy to peg issues and the problems of excessive wealth on somebody like him. But I'm afraid if we do that, and now we'll pull back from the political discussion, (laughs) that can distract us from the realities that we face. 
because we struggle with humility too, and we struggle with the issues of money and wealth and power, no matter where you see that you are on the continuum right here in Naperville. Yes, there are rich people that are much richer than other people right in this room, but all of us, by living in this area, have to deal with this. The effect of money on a sense of importance. The effect of money that can give us a little bit of power, that can give us in a subtle way, and we don't even think we're doing it, and we don't think we're doing it, but it gives us a little sense of superiority. It gives us an assumed power that that, that sometimes goes along with that. In a few places, uh, James addresses this with the the rich and the poor. He says, watch out for the effect of, of money on you and what it does in terms of your issues with humility. In the ninth verse of chapter 1, he says, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. Kind of, he's just saying, don't let your wealth, don't let your possessions be the core of your identity, because your identity is going to go beyond that. Let it be in this humble acceptance of what God has provided for you and finding your place in his will as well. And so he's guarding against and he's cautioning against what can happen and how wealth and obsession with money can carry us away. I said this in our discussion this morning, that an obsession with money can be an obsession with riches, but I've even seen an obsession with frugality. And an obsession with frugality can be just as distracting, can it? When it's all about frugality. Yeah, that's important value. But it's more a sense of living into what God has provided and realizing that we don't have all the answers and what we have God's provided. It comes back to this theme of humility. James also touches on the issue of favoritism that's influenced by wealth and, and the familiarity with some people and not too sure about other people. And so he talks about, about um, <clears throat> favoritism in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Where do we do this? I think it's very subtle when we do this. We're more comfortable with people that are like us and talk like us and look like us. We're more comfortable in making space for the easy people and the attractive people. But I think these subtle differences of of wealth, and I think even this touches on our discussion of racial righteousness and racism here. We don't have time to go into it, but I would like to do some discussion from this as well in terms of our comfort levels with different kinds of people. And James is saying, don't let those be the determiners. All are important to God. All are important to the life of the community. And I see us working our way through this at Naperville Covenant. I see us on the one hand, we just, and I do it too, we, we go with what's easy. We, it's easier to talk with the people that are easy to talk to, right? And I also see us making some steps here and, and, and breaking out in terms of some of the economic differences, not just even racial and, and other, but other areas where we're, we're, making some, we're making some steps. We're taking some steps towards seeing that everybody is part of the family. And I want to commend that at the same time as I challenge us in terms of our humility and favoritism and rich and poor. The subtleness of a sort of anti-humility in James also uh, shows up in matters of prayer and planning. There's some convicting things he has to say about our prayer life and how it bumps up against humility. 
In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James is not subtle. (laughs) He's pretty direct with that one. But it makes us check our own motives in our prayer life too, doesn't it? Is my prayer mainly for me? Well, we, we, you know, a lot of us have kind of dealt with that one. No, it is, our prayers aren't all just a me, me, me. We, we pray for other things. We pray for other people. But I think even when we check, check sometimes sort of the subtle things when we're praying for another, it may still be about me. Oh, Lord, help them grow. Lord, help them to see the places you're calling them to change. Because <laughs> they're driving me crazy. <laughs> yeah. Or praying for a certain outcome of something that may benefit us more than another one. I think we need to look at some of the subtleties that come on in here that place us at the center of that prayer. That's what it is. It's not just a me, 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 but it places ourselves at the center. And when ourselves are at the center, we have a hard time focusing on Christ and we have a hard time focusing on the sister and the brother that he calls us into relationship with. We need to check our motives for ourselves and even for others. And then there's also uh, this other part here in James about the arrogance of planning in our life. Now, we, we, are, we should plan for our lives, obviously, but there needs to be an awareness that we, again, aren't the center of determining what will happen in our life. Verse 13 of chapter 4 says, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. Now, I would not say that James here is supporting a lack of planning for our lives. But remember, the overarching theme here is humility. And rather than putting ourselves at the center of things, of putting Christ at the center of things. Yes, we are called to make plans. But there's an understanding that we do not have control over our lives. And that's why he calls it an arrogance, an arrogant scheme. And he says it, that boasting is evil. There's a centeredness that seeks God, that yes, sets plans, and yet entrusts them to God. And this is not just a matter of a formula, like adding that on and then, this is what we're going to do, this is what we're going to do, if God wills. (laughs) It really is an inner attitude of humility that he's looking at. Well, I could have done a whole sermon on humility, and I would have been really proud of that, so I'm not going to. So we're going to move on to a couple other themes here. Another one is watching our words and, and working with the tongue, watching our words. James really goes after the tongue and the damage that our words can do. It could be a spark that starts a forest fire. I'm just going to mention Donald Trump one more time, <laughs> and that's it. Okay, I'm done. Um, he says it's a spark that can start a forest fire, words that wound and damage and are misunderstood. Watching our use of words um, in the volume of our words is sometimes what Megan and I uh, refer to as a need to edit ourselves. <laughs> sometimes we say it about others, but we need to remind ourselves too, or editing ourselves, or what I see in here is anger management or word count. You ever do a word count on your computer? Those of you, those of you who are students and who a teacher says, well, it should be about, and they give you a range, and you keep counting, and you keep adding adverbs and adjectives just to stretch that thing up to how long it needs to be, right? Yeah. Some of us are the other way. It's like, I've got to bring this thing down. I, some of you that uh, write for publishing, you go, I've got to bring it down. Where can I, where am I, where do I have too many extra words in here? So some of you are very familiar uh, with word count. 
You ever wish you had a word count on your speech? (laughs) Not somebody else's, (laughs) but your own. Sometimes we need to do a, a word count that we aren't speaking so much that we're overwhelming or trying to prove something or draw attention to ourselves. In James 1, 19 and 20, he says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Now, this one has been tossed my direction in terms of the speed with which I deliver a sermon. I don't think that's what that's talking about, slow to speak. (laughs) It means slow before we speak up, slow before we react or initiate conversation about something. The two-way reality of communication comes through here, that it's not really a 50-50 when it's done in the context of healthy relationships, when it's done in strengthened community. Sometimes there needs to be less speaking and more listening and more intentionality in our speaking. And even the anger that James speaks of is a me reaction, isn't it? It's me at the center. We need to learn at what causes our anger, what is behind it, and learn to manage it as well. A way to summarize really what James says and really kind of a guideline to work with, I, I kind of summarize as, as controlling self and respecting others. Letting Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit be at work within us and so that we're mindful about what we're thinking, what we're praying, what we're saying, how we're listening, so that we do it in a way that respects others and builds others up. It's a little bit what we've tried to tap into here at Naperville Covenant when we have some some covenants we live by, our holy manners as we call them, of giving one another the benefit of the doubt, believing the best in each other, communicating clearly and directly, not somebody told me to tell you that somebody else said, but saying, "I, I have a difficult thing to speak with you about. And also embracing differences and expecting in the community of the church that there will be differences, but it doesn't necessarily have to be conflict or one right or wrong. It's a controlling self, letting the Spirit give us that self-control so that issues forth in the ways that we speak into respect for one another. Controlling the tongue, watching the tongue. And then thirdly is the living out of our, our faith, our good deeds. Being doers of the word is a little phrase that we hear sometimes, and it comes from James, actually from James 1.22, where he says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Don't just listen to the word and deceive yourselves, meaning, well, yeah, I read the Bible all the time. I read the Bible, I believe. No, do what it says. It's a doing of the word that we're called to when we read the word. What's it calling me? There's many times you read the word and it's a, you need to understand this, you need to have this theological position straight. The bottom line is, what's it call, how's it calling me to live and what's it calling me to do? And James wrestles with this thing. He talks about faith and works here. Verse 14 of chapter 2, he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. This is the faith and the works question that comes up when we read James. Because if we're familiar with the teaching of the Apostle Paul, and particularly some verses, uh, well, several of them, but I think of those in 
Ephesians that speak that our, our, our salvation is not by our works. Our salvation is by, by grace through faith alone, by trusting in Christ alone. We don't get into heaven by doing good works. We are not judged by our good works. If you're reading through the Bible, you're seeing this whole thing of, of this whole layer that Paul dealt with of, of people that kept wanting to add to the gospel of things we had to do in order to secure salvation. And Paul says, no, salvation is purely a gift of grace. And yet here comes James saying, just to have, that, to have faith without works is dead. Can such faith save them? Are Paul and James in contradiction in the word? Or is there a way to put these things together? I believe that the answer is that they were dealing with different, different groups here and different emphases. The Apostle Paul was fighting this issue of, 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 of having done certain sorts of Jewish rites and, and certain kinds of works uh, in order to gain the favor of God. And Paul saying over and over again, no, salvation is only if there's no way we could earn salvation on our own. That's the message of Paul. So when he speaks about salvation by faith, that's a faith that puts deep trust in Christ to save. Faith means believing in and, and receiving the gift of forgiveness that comes only in and through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's that kind of faith that receives the gift, realizing that nothing I can do can make God like me more. Nothing I can do can make God save me. It's all in terms of my faith and trust in him. I believe what had happened, though, was there were places where people in James' group were saying, oh, yeah, I believe, but weren't doing anything. There was, no, there was no evidence of the faith. And so the faith, the works that James is talking about are not works that will or won't save, but they're rather works that will give evidence that that gift of salvation has been received. If one of you says, go in peace, keep warm, and we'll be well fed to somebody who's hungry and without clothes, uh, what, what good is that? Faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. In other words, faith is not real. The commitment one's made to Christ and to live in him and grow in him is not real, and yes, it's being shown in the kind of actions and the deeds that are being done. So what I would call doing our faith, basically doing our faith. One of the joys of being on vacation for me was to be able to do some some reading of novels. I, I really don't take, I don't have much time, and I don't take much time to read uh, novels during the year, and so I, um, I just relished the opportunity this time, and I read one and a half books. <laughs> and um, the first one was Land Without Sin by Paula Houston. Houston. It takes place, actually, in, in Guatemala. One, wonderful book. The second one is one I'm not quite done with yet, called Cutting for Stones. Some of you may be familiar with it, uh, by Abraham Vergesi. And... Um, I'm going to try to give you just a brief little feel for the book here and, and, and some words that might support this idea of doing our faith. It takes place in a missionary hospital in uh, Ethiopia uh, in the early 50s, I believe. And um, uh, the main doctors in this hospital are from India, uh, but the woman who runs the hospital is, is British. Her name is Matron. We only know her as Matron. And... Um, she is a nun from England, and she has run this hospital for many, many years. And this story plays out around some of the Indian doctors and a set of twins that are born, and it's told first person by one of the twins. That's kind of the story. But there's a, a storyline in here as Matron runs this hospital, and she sees the practical realities of ministering to the needs of people in Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia. There's a church in the United States that has been supportive of them, has been a bit of a patron church, and she knows how to write letters to them to get the money that she needs to do the things that she does there. And she's surprised one day when Mr. Harris shows up from this large church in a, I won't mention the name of the state, it's a very large, large southern state. Anyway, Mr. Harris um, 
comes and uh, is sort of surprises her with his visit. And he kind of wants to see what's happened as a result of the gifts they've given. And basically, it hits that place where this church has tried to fund things that they think the hospital needs when, in fact, she says the real ministry is happening and caring for some of the needs. One of the issues is Bibles. There are stacks and stacks and stacks of Bibles scattered around this hospital. There's operating rooms that aren't being used, be, uh, well, first of all, because there's not enough surgeons, but also because there's just, they need a place to store all the Bibles that are being sent from the, from the U.S. Don't get me wrong. Bibles are wonderful, need the word, love the word. But uh, let me just kind of bring you up to speed here and what happens. Matron says to Mr. Harris in her office one day, she says, we have more English Bibles than we have English-speaking people in the entire country. I think some are from your Sunday school children, actually. We need medicine and food, but we get the Bible. I always wondered if the good people who send us Bibles really think that hookworm and hunger are healed by Scripture. Our people are illiterate. And then a little bit earlier, he is a, he's saying, I'm not so sure about this one, one person who's, uh, who, who's a part of the Catholic Church here. If they're ascribing to this one particular view of Christ, then I won't go into all that. And she answers him and says, God will judge us, Mr. Harris, by what we did to relieve the suffering of our fellow human beings. I don't think God cares what doctrine we embrace. Now, I'm not necessarily supporting that. I think God does care about the doctrines we embrace. But in this moment... He was speaking of a position of faith. We are Christians, and not only that, we are white Christians in America who have assumed what you need in Ethiopia. When she is saying, we need help. We need the gospel with skin on it. We need the gospel with feet on it. We have people here who are suffering. Yes, we need the word. Yes, we need to understand our theology. Yes, we need to embrace doctrines that support who we are and what we do. But God calls us to live that out too. And if we have all of the right answers and yet do nothing, uh, what, what good is it? I thought about that also as I was reading this week that uh, we talked in this, this morning about some of the people who had demons cast out of them in, in Mark on Thursday and Friday. And a few times, those people, the demons, would actually speak and lift up who Jesus was. You are the Son of God. And Jesus would say, would you knock it off? I don't want everybody to know that yet. But it was the demons who were speaking the truth. They believed in Jesus, the demons. (laughs) Even the demons believe and shudder, says the Scriptures. So it's not just in believing the truth. It's in living it out in ways that flesh out who Christ is and what he calls us to do. Naperville Covenant, I believe we're doing well, and we can do better. I've quoted Pastor Willie Jemison a few times. You're doing pretty good, and we can do better. In the issues of humility and looking on the inside of our hearts and what God's calling us to do. And the issues of our speech and what we say and how we say it and how we respect one another with our words, and yet even do the work of the difficult words. And in this area of living out our faith, I see so many encouraging things. Diana even touched on it in her prayer this morning. Some of our Stephen ministers are doing some amazing things of coming alongside some people who are in need. A couple of different women in our church, single women, have had to move recently, and the people that have gathered around them, uh, it's just a joy to see how this church pulls together to live out their faith. I'm excited about seeing the kind of things that are happening. The response that came to get our kids to Chick and then what's happening in the lives of our kids that came back from Chick. Oh my goodness, all that stuff we told you about God changes lives at Chick? We were right. I mean, we knew we were right, but we're seeing these things happening because people are doing something and living into it.
But let the words of James be a call to us to, 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 keep, to keep going and to, do, to be doing better. So I finish with just two simple questions. What are the words of James saying to you today? And things perhaps that I've scratched. What are the words of James saying to our church today? Will you just re- reflect on that for just a few moments of silence and then I will close in prayer. What's James saying to you? What might James be saying to our church? Lord God, I ask that you would give to each of us. Give to me, Lord. I'm going to ask for me first. I'm going to be selfish and say, give me a heart of humility. Help me see the places, Lord, where I have the quick answer or the inappropriate attitude or the favoritism, where I say too much and where I say too little, and where I just bank on the fact that I know what's true but don't do anything about it. I confess that, Lord God, and I pray that you would open up each of our hearts to come to that place of humility and vulnerability before you, Lord. We want to be more fully who you've called us to be. And as those people who live into these truths, Lord, we want to work together that this church more and more would grow into that place where you've been calling us and where we've seen you working, Lord God, to be people who care for one another and be people who care about those who have never been in this room who live in deep need, often physical need and yet deep spiritual need as well. Lord, may it burn in our hearts as we trust you and as we follow you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your deep love for us, your love that accepts us, that includes us, your love that saves us, and your love that never, ever lets us go. Even as we fumble along through these things, Lord, your love hangs on to us. And for that, we give you great thanks and praise. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.